Chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Verses 30 through 32. And they departed thence, and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples, saying unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he's killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. Burkett notes, Observable it is, how frequently our Savior forewarned his disciples of his approaching sufferings. And as the time of his sufferings drew near, he did more frequently warn them of it. But all was little enough to arm them against the scandal of the cross, and to reconcile their thoughts to a suffering condition. The disciples had taken up the common opinion that the Messiah was to be a temporal prince, and as such, to reign here upon earth. And they knew not how to reconcile this with his being delivered up into the hands of men that should kill him. And yet, they were afraid to ask him concerning this matter. Now from Christ's frequent forewarning his disciples of approaching suffering, we may gather that we can never hear either too often or too much of the doctrine of the cross, nor to be too frequently instructed in our duty to prepare for a suffering state. As Christ went by his cross to his crown, from a state of abasement to a state of exaltation, so must all his disciples and followers likewise. Verses 33 through 37. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed amongst yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desires to be the first, the same shall be the last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them, And when he'd taken him into his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receiveth me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Burkett notes, It may justly seem a wonder that when our blessed Savior discoursed so frequently with his disciples about his suffering, they should at the same time be disputing amongst themselves about precedency and preeminency. Which of them should be the greatest, the first in place, the highest in dignity and honor? But from this instance we may learn that the holiest and best of men are subject to pride and ambition, prone to covet worldly dignity and greatness, ready to catch at the bait of honor, to effect a precedency before, and a superiority over others. The apostles themselves were touched, if not tainted, with the itch of ambition to cure which our Savior preaches to them the doctrine of humility. Where observe one, our Lord doth not say, He that is first, but he that desireth to be first, shall be the last of all, and servant of all, teaching us that all persons in general, and ministers in particular, ought not to seek out places of dignity and preeminency for themselves, but be sought out for them. He that is first in seeking them usually least deserves them, and last obtains them. If a man desire to be first, the same should be last of all. Observe, too, our Savior teaches his disciples humility by the type and example of a little child, which he sets before them as a proper emblem of humility, showing them that they ought to be as free from ambition as a young child who affects nothing of precedency or superiority. Such as are of the highest eminency in the Church of Christ ought to be adorned with humility and look upon themselves as lying under the greatest obligations to be the most eminently useful 
and serviceable for the church's good. Observe 3. How exceeding dear and precious such persons are to Christ who resemble little children in true humility and lowliness of mind, assuring the world that whatsoever kindness or respect they show to them, he accounts shown to himself. He that receiveth them, says Christ, receiveth me. So near is the union, so dear the relation, betwixt Christ and his members, that whatsoever good or evil is done to them, he reckons it done unto himself. Verses 38 to 42. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he follows us not, and we forbade him, because he follows us not. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. Burkett notes, The evangelist here sets down a conference betwixt our Savior Christ and St. John, his disciple. Observe 1. St. John's relation of a matter of fact to Christ, namely, his forbidding one to cast out devils in Christ's name, but did not follow Christ as they did being his professed disciples. Though only the disciples that followed Christ had a commission to work miracles, yet there were others, no enemies to Christ, who, in imitation of the disciples, did attempt to do the like. And God was pleased, for the honor of his Son, in whose name they cast out devils, to give them sometimes success. Almighty God may, and sometimes doth, give success to such actions and enterprises as are good in themselves, though undertaken by persons that have no lawful call or warrant from God to do them. However, it was no small confirmation of the truth of Christianity that Christ's name was thus powerful, even among those that did not follow him, and therefore could do nothing by compact with him. Observe, too, the actions of the disciples towards this person. We forbade him. This showed, one, their ignorance in supposing that none could be true disciples nor work miracles, but such as followed them. We forbade him because he followed not us. Their rashness in forbidding him in their own heads before they had consulted Christ about it. Two, their envy and emulation in that they were grieved and discontented at this person's casting out devils because he was not a follower of them. Oh, the imperfect composition of the best of saints! How much weakness, infirmity, and corruption doth John, the beloved disciple, discover upon this occasion? The sin of envy and emulation against the gift of God in others is very natural to man and to good men, yea, to the best of men. It is as difficult to look upon another man's gifts without envy as to look upon our own without pride. Observe 3. Our Savior's Answer and Reply Forbid him not because our Savior knew that his enterprise of casting out devils in his name would in some manner and measure redound to the glory of his name, although he undertook the matter without sufficient warrant from Christ. We ought not to censure and condemn those who do that which is good in itself, though they fail in the manner of it, and in the means they use for effecting it. Observe 4. What encouragement our Savior gives the world to be kind to his friends and followers. He assures them that even a cup of cold water given for his sake to such as profess his name shall not miss of a reward. 
Learn thence that the least office of love and respect, of kindness and charity, shown to any of the ministers or members of Jesus Christ for his sake, is represented as done unto himself, and shall be rewarded by himself. Observe 5. He shall gain that which he cannot lose by parting with that which he cannot keep. Observe 6. What a heinous and grievous sin it is to scandalize or offend any of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He will most severely judge and punish such as give offense to them by any wrong or injury done unto them, both in this life and the next. It were better a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Verses 43 through 48. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offendeth thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Burkett notes, In the former verse, our Savior dissuaded from the sin of scandal, or giving offense to the serious and sincere Christians, threatening a very grievous judgment against such as should anyway offend them. Now, in these six verses, he prescribes a remedy against that and all other sin, namely, by avoiding all occasions that lead to sin. Here observe one, the admonition or warning given by Christ unto us, to remove far from us all occasion of sin, though never so dear unto us. We are not to understand this command literally, as if it were our duty to maim our bodily members, but metaphorically, to cut off all occasions that may betray us into sin. Hence note that sin may be avoided. It is our duty to avoid whatever leads us into it, or may be the instrument or occasion of it. Observe too, a reason enforcing this admonition. This is drawn from the benefit and advantage that will come by cutting off such occasions of sin. It will further us in our attainment of eternal life and prevent our being cast into hell fire. Now our Savior affirms that it is better for a man to enter into life with the loss of all those things that are dear and precious to him in this world, rather than to go into hell with the fruition and enjoyment of them. Learn hence, that a diligent and daily care to avoid sin and all occasions that lead into it will be a special means to escape the torments of hell and further us in our attainments of heaven and eternal life. Observe 3. The description which our Savior gives of the torments of hell. First, by its extremity. It is like gnawing worms and a consuming fire. Secondly, by its eternity. A worm that never dieth and a fire that is never quenched. Where note that the remembrance of things past, the experience of things present, and the expectation of things to come are the bitings of the worm of conscience. At every bite whereof damned souls give a dreadful shriek. Such as will not hear the voice of conscience shall feel unto that purpose the sting of conscience. Learn hence that there is most certainly a place and state of punishment and torment in another world for wicked men to suffer in upon the score of sins committed in this world.
Secondly, that the punishment and torments of the wicked in hell are intolerable and interminable, of exquisite pain and endless duration. Their worm never dieth, and their fire is never quenched. Verse 49 For everyone should be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Burkett notes, everyone shall be salted with fire. That is, every one of them mentioned in the foregoing verses who would refuse to cut off a right hand and pluck out a right eye. That is, to mortify their bosom lusts and beloved corruptions, which are as dear as a right hand or a right eye. Every such wicked and unmortified person shall be salted with fire. That is, thrown into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, as our Savior speaks. Verse 44. And the being salted with fire imports and implies that as to their beings, they shall be preserved, even as salt preserves things from corruption, that they may be objects of eternal wrath of God, so that for sinners to be salted with fire is to be given up to everlasting destruction. Learn hence that all such unsavory sinners as indulge their corrupt lusts and affections shall be salted with fire, that is, given up to everlasting destruction and hellfire. But every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. That is, every Christian who has given himself a real sacrifice unto God shall be salted not with fire, but with salt. Not with fire to be consumed and destroyed, but with salt to be preserved and kept savory. The grace of mortification is that to the soul which salt is to the body. It preserves it from putrefaction and renders it savory. Learn hence, one, that every Christian in this life ought to be a spiritual sacrifice and oblation unto God. Two, that there is a putrid and corrupt part in every sacrifice, in every Christian, which must be purged out, and the sacrifice purged and cleansed from. Three, that the grace of mortification is the true salt which must clarify the soul, and with which every sacrifice must be salted, that will be a savory offering unto God. Everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourself, and have peace one with another. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior here compares Christians in general, his ministers in particular, unto salt for a double reason. First, because it is the nature of salt to preserve things from corruption and putrefaction, and to render them savory and pleasant. Thus are the ministers of Christ to labor and endeavor by the purity of their doctrine to sweeten putrefying sinners, that they may become savory unto God and man, and be kept from being fly-blown with errors and false doctrines. Secondly, because salt has an acrimony, a piercing power in it, which subdues the whole lump and turns it into its own nature. Such a piercing power is there in the ministry of the word, that it subdues the whole man, to the obedience of itself. Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. That is, let all persons, especially ministers, retain a seasoning virtue in themselves, that they may sweeten and season others, even all they converse with. And as salt has a uniting power, and knits the parts of the body salted together, so upholding of union and peace one with another, will declare that you have salt in yourselves. Hence learn, that it is the duty of all Christians, but especially the ministers of the gospel, to maintain brotherly concord and agreement among themselves, 
both as an argument of their sincerity and an ornament to their profession.